The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We pray for us as we consider God's Word together. Father, you have promised that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish its purpose. You said your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us now in the truth. And Lord, you promised about your spirit, that your spirit would bring conviction of sin, and that your spirit would bear witness and testify of Jesus. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work here among us to show us the glory of Jesus, show us our sin, show us greater still your love for us, the love of the Father to send the Son. We pray that you would be honored here in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at Isaiah 53 as we were going through the servant songs. We, we jumped over 49 and and 50 of the servant songs because we've been sinking into Isaiah 53. And there's five verses to this hymn, if you recall. So it begins at 52.13. And the, the first uh, verse of the hymn starts off with such exaltation that what God promises about his servant, the Messiah, is that he will be high and lifted up. And he's going to be exalted. That's a promise. And we see that this is a chiasm, and it's actually like a, an A-B-B-A structure, so it's going to kind of descend down the stairs and take you through all of the humility and the suffering of Jesus, but then it's going to end in exaltation again by the end of this great hymn. And so when you get to this last hymn, which will be the, the verse 5 of the hymn, it's verses 10 to 12, and that's what we're going to consider this morning. So let's give attention now to God's Word. Yet it was the will of the Lord or the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, I'm, I don't know how many of you were here and heard our youth pastor Bruce Wiley give his children's sermon, which was very well done, very memorable, but in his children's sermon that he gave just uh, two days ago, he, he, we went into the land of make-believe. And imagine if somebody wrote hundreds of years beforehand and actually prophesied about the things about your life that were going to happen in the future. And they had actually written them down in a book. And then you discover years later, wait a minute, this was written about me hundreds of years in advance. Could it possibly be? And that's what we have here in Isaiah 53, is we have the sufferings of the Messiah. And all these things point to substitute, point to vicarious, someone in your place 
for us as a substitute to pay for our sin. And Jesus did that on a cross in time, space, and history. And so we have a hard time kind of embracing this because I think there's kind of like two main views about sin. When you start hearing about sin, we begin to kind of get tone deaf. And I think we kind of go in one or two directions. And I'll illustrate. The one direction is to minimize, and the other direction is to maximize. So the minimize is, I know that's great, but I'm not really in need of that. Oh, thank you. I'm a pretty good person, and I don't really need Jesus. That's the minimize view. The other is, is when you actually come under the weight of sin, then the maximize view is, that's great, but I have totally blown it. I am a loser, and there isn't any hope for me. I just feel terrible, and I can't forgive myself. That would be the maximize view. And then we think that the, and both think that the work of Christ and what he's done doesn't really apply to me. Let me just illustrate. I'll give you two presidents, or two most recent ones. This is what they both said in interviews. Donald Trump was once asked if he had ever done anything wrong and if he needed to ask God for forgiveness. And Trump's reply was, I'm not sure I have. Uh, I just go and try and do a better job from there. Well, I'm not sure I have, meaning that he's ever asked God for forgiveness. I just try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. So that would be, he doesn't really think that he's really sinned. And if he does, he just tries to do better, but he doesn't bring God into the picture. Okay? Then we have Obama. Obama was in an interview, and he was asked about his views. And he's asked if he believes in heaven, and, and then he's asked about sin. But he says, what I believe is that if I live my life as well as I can, and notice the, the personal pronouns of I in this story, what I believe is that if I can live my life as well as I can, that I will be rewarded. I don't presume to have knowledge what happens after I die, but I feel very strongly that whether the reward is in this life or now or in the hereafter, the aligning myself to my faith and my values is a good thing. When I tuck in my daughters at night and I feel like I've been a good father to them and I see in them and I'm transferring values that I got from my mother, that they're kind people, that they're honest people, they're curious people, that's a little piece of heaven. Do you believe in sin? Yes. What is sin? They ask him. Being out of alignment with my values. What happens if you sin in your life? I think it's the same thing as the question about heaven, he says. In the same way that I'm true to myself and my faith, that is its own reward. And when I'm not true to it, it's its own punishment. You see, these would be examples of minimizing because both Obama and Trump are godless. Meaning, what I mean by that is that God is not in the picture for either of them. Trump doesn't bring God into it, and Obama is all about my faith and my values and what is valued to me. And so sin is a violation of his values. You see, this is why it doesn't make sense when you get to Isaiah 53, and it's all about God crushing his son. It makes no sense in a minimalist worldview. Unless... You flipped it around and it was God's values, God's design, and our faith is recognizing that we have not kept his standards. 
of the law, and his standards are perfect. So an example like of maximizing the law, though, would be, I think, when we feel like we have blown it, and as the longer I've been a pastor, it's like you're no longer surprised anymore. And I think most people feel like, if I had to put it in a nutshell, they're damaged goods. They feel like, I've blown it, and I'm damaged goods. And I'm not really worthy, or you know, I feel really worthless, because they've been sinned against, and they have sinned against others. I remember talking to a guy years ago that he had been violated by his brother, sexually, multiple times. And he was saying, if I believe this, my whole world would be turned upside down. But he had a hard time believing it because he was, felt like he was worthless goods. I think we feel like Jean Valjean was being sung to, if you remember when Russell Crowe was singing, look down, look down, you know, and he's singing all about the law, and he says, now prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means? And John Valjean, yes, it means I'm free. No. Follow to the letter your itinerary, this badge of shame. You shall show until you die. And he just pounds him, look down, look down. You know, he's singing all the bass parts and, you know, there's no, there's no hope for you. Just wear this badge of shame. Well, enter Jesus. We can't minimize, we can't maximize. We see that Jesus did not minimize. God did not minimize. He maximized sin and punished sin to show us the glory of God, to show us the holiness of God, how great He is. I mean, somebody just reached out and touched the ark to steady it one time in the Old Testament, and God struck him because a sinful man to be in the presence of God and to touch the ark, poof. And then you remember Aaron had a couple sons, and God came down and you know, displayed His glory in Leviticus 10, and they thought, hey, we can recreate this. Let's just take our, 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 our lighters and let's flick our bix and let's make it happen again. Let's do this flame thing. It's pretty cool. And they did what was not authorized or commanded by God and God just instantly struck them both dead. Nadab and Abihu gone. And God says, don't even mourn over them. Whew. There's a couple guys, and you say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, the New Testament, you've got Ananias and Sapphira. They just lie about the offering to the Lord and say, oh, yeah, this is the right price. We're offering all to the Lord. And they had lied about the price and making themselves look self-righteous. And, and God just struck both of them down, and they both die instantly. God is holy. God was taking people out because they were coming to the table unworthily in 1 Corinthians. So... We need to see God take sin seriously. And that helps us to see Isaiah 53 for what it is. The title of this message is called The Aftermath. Because the aftermath is a word we use to describe consequences or after effects of a significant, unpleasant event, some sort of tragedy, some type of terrible thing that's happened, usually like a natural catastrophe. And we're looking at the fallout, the consequences, the repercussions the aftermath. And you can't read Isaiah 53 and, and not see the incredible amount of suffering, of pain, of anguish, and of death. Something awful, something terrible has happened. And we just jumped into verse 10. 
Verse 11 speaks of the anguish of his soul. This Messiah, this servant is going to experience the anguish of his soul, the travail of his soul, the troubling toil, the languishing labor, the awful anguish. This servant's going to be despised and rejected, verse 3. He's going to be smitten and afflicted, verse 4. He's going to be pierced, crushed, and punished and wounded, verse 5. Verse 6, he's going to be slaughtered, or verse 7. He's going to be cut off from the land of the living, verse 8. We're just getting started. He's going to be put to the grave and to his death, verse 9. Verse 12, he's going to pour out his soul to death. I mean, this is all horrific. And it makes you ask some questions, some important questions about why and where's the justice in this? What is the aftermath of this event? What is the fallout? What is the repercussions of what's going on? And shockingly, we are given seven shalls. Seven shalls in verses 10 to 12 in the text this morning. The first shall, he shall see his offspring, 10a. 10b, he shall prolong his days. 10c, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 11a, he shall see and be satisfied. 11b, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 11c, he shall bear their iniquities. And verse 12, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's the fallout. There's the repercussions. So let's consider what happened. When and where and why and who was it for and how does it benefit me? First of all, what happened? Well, scriptures tell us that Jesus died. On the third day, he was raised. When and where did this happen? Well, the cross, 33 AD, April 3rd, 3 p.m. Most scholars have it, if you're looking for the exact time, space, and history. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in our place in accordance with the scriptures, Old Testament, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So certainly Isaiah 53 is one of these Old Testament scriptures that's telling you that Jesus was died for our sins, buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 and he tells us specifically that he's doing that. No sooner than Jesus tells Peter that Simon, Simon... Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's like, doesn't believe this prophecy. He, he's pleading, and, he, and, and Jesus tells him this very night, you're, before the crow cocks, crocks three times, or you will have denied me three times. And so, then he says this, I tell you, the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven is a direct quotation of Isaiah 53, 53, 12. Jesus is saying, that's me. That's what I've come to do, Peter. And if you're wondering why Jesus is, like all of scripture it's like if you're watching a movie and then all of a sudden it, it just slows down and everything kind of harnesses in. Jesus is the last 24 hours of his life, is the last third of Matthew, or John's gospel, 
And it's a significant chunk in all of the other Gospels. It's the, the, the event that is talked about the most in the Gospels. And when Jesus gets upset the most and he tells Peter to get behind me Satan, it's because he's going to a cross. And Peter is telling him there's another option, that you can avoid this and don't go that way. And obviously, Jesus had already been wrestling with the devil on that. And he's telling him, get behind me, Satan, because this is to fulfill the scriptures. This has to be done. Jesus will be numbered with the transgressors, so much so, we're told, that he was crucified between two criminals and the whole crowd of Jerusalem before he's crucified, is screaming so loudly for the release of Barabbas, who was a notorious criminal, that they screamed even louder for Jesus' crucifixion, that Jesus is deemed, in the eyes of the people of God, in the eyes of man, he's deemed to be a greater transgressor and sinner than Barabbas. So when he's numbered with the transgressors, he's numbered with the transgressors. He goes to the cross fulfilling Isaiah 53 and the apostle Peter sees the clear connection between Isaiah 53 and Jesus when he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. You see clearly a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the end of verse 11 and the end of verse 12 tell us that he shall bear their iniquities and he bore the sin of many. And verse 5 says, by his wounds we are healed. Exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. And Jesus himself said, and I'm sure you recall this verse in Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, you can't help but hear that now and hear the echo back to Isaiah 53 about a servant who will bear the sins of many and make many to be accounted righteous. You see, Jesus has come as the suffering servant and he's saying this, that I have come not to be served, but to serve, but to be the servant, the Isaiah servant. You see, he's come to be a ransom. For many in our place. That's only half the story though, because something happens in this text between 10a and 10b that changes everything. The servant dies. What happens when you die? <laughs> when you die, that's it. You see, my son sent me the story of Lainey Purdue. I'm sure many of you, when I tell you the story, you remember her. But just in the last month or so, there was a crash, a little plane crash, over in Beaver Island off of Lake Michigan. Five people were on the plane. One survived, Lainey Purdue, 11 years old, broke 11 bones. How did she live? Her dad. Her dad knew the plane was going in. And he put her in a bear hug. And he grabbed onto her. And he, and he embraced her. And all the bones that she broke were on the opposite side of where he had her in the bear hook. And he gave his life for her as a substitute in her place. But the problem is of that story, it's so incredible, but he's no more. He doesn't come back. That's the end of the dad. She's now free. 
she, she actually walked out of the hospital. She is now home with her family. She lived because her dad, in his loving act as a father, embraced her, right? Well, the problem, the difficulty of that story, though, is he's no more. She doesn't get to see him. Not Jesus. See, Jesus not only dies, but then it says he will see his offspring. Number one, he will prolong his days. Number two, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. I mean, if you can't see resurrection in that, you have to see how do dead people all of a sudden see offspring and have prolonged days and the will of the Lord prospers in your hand. You see, we have this picture in Hebrews 2 of Jesus the Messiah fulfilling Psalm 8, which says that God made man to be made lower than the angels. And Jesus comes as the second Adam, and he's actually made lower than the angels because he takes on humanity. And he restores dominion to humanity, which was lost in Adam's sin. And the writer of Hebrews then goes on to say that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because we're his offspring. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53. You see, the writer goes on to say that, that Jesus, Jesus um, he's going to lead us in worship. And he says, I will tell your name to my brothers. I will tell the Father's name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is about Jesus singing the praises of God and leading us in worship of the Father. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus will say, Behold, here am I and the children you've given me. That would be Isaiah 53, seeing his offspring. Here am I as he presents him and delivers the kingdom back to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 talks about, and leads us in worship of the Father. You see, to Jesus will be given the scroll of human history in Revelation 5, and he unrolls it because he's worthy as the lamb, as the lion and the lamb. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And we're told in Revelation 5, weep no more, the elder says to John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God out of every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5. You see, he shall see his offspring. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, meaning he's going to be the one that's in control of all of history. He's worthy. And they're going to prolong his days. He's, He's from everlasting to everlasting. You see, there's more in Hebrews 2. That's not all. We're told in Hebrews 2.14 that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hmm. What's the connection of Hebrews 2.14 with Isaiah 53? Well, Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus dividing the spoil in verse 12. He shall divide the spoil with the strong or more more likely numerous, the great multitude of people. He does this, uh, this idea here is a victory. You have this language here of plunder and spoil. And it's like the warrior who is, if you saw a modern movie and after the guy has died, you come and you clean him of all of his weapons and you take all of his weapons from him. 
That's the imagery here, is imagery of stripping a warrior of weapons after you've killed him. And so who does Jesus strip when he divides the spoils? Well, you have to kind of consider the bigger picture of Scripture. He destroys, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And we're told the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying he's come to plunder Satan's kingdom and take people that were taken captive by the devil and take them back. He's going to tie up the enemy, he's saying. One stronger than will attack and overcome him and take his armor and take the people back. Jesus says, now that now's the judgment of the world as he goes to the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. You see, we have to remember what Christ has done and how he did it on a cross. He turned Satan's weapons against him. This is called Satan's hour, the hour of the cross. And yet it was God's finest hour. Because we who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, Colossians 2.13 says, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus goes to the cross, our record of debt is laid on him. And when it's nailed to the cross, he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame in his victory. We sing about this every Christmas. We sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power where we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. You see, the cross is God's coup d'etat. Christ destroyed the devil with his own weapon. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He lays it down willingly. He takes it up again. And Jesus' death is the triumph of Satan. It breaks his power. Well, how? Well, Donald McLeod, in his great book on the atonement, says this. When the blood was sprinkled, God could no longer condemn. Where God could no longer condemn, the devil could no longer accuse. And where he could not accuse, he could not hold. And where he could no longer hold, men and women transferred their allegiance from Satan to the Son of God. The crucified, Jesus, having bought and rescued them with his blood, sat down at God's right hand. And now, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who's to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who's raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us as he makes intercession for the transgressors as the last part of the hymn tells us in Isaiah 53, 12. And now no one can snatch us out of his hand if we're in Jesus. No principality, no authority, no devil. We are hidden with Christ and God so that when Christ appears, we shall appear with him in glory. And Christ is now building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. 
because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him because of his triumph at the cross and in the resurrection. And so when he ascended into heaven, he now gives gifts to men. He shares the plunder and the spoil, and the spoil is his rescued people who have been ransomed, these ransomed souls. He pours out his spirit upon them, and he gives gifts to men. Holy Spirit gifts to his church. And now God's building his church. You see, what is God doing? Why did God do this? Because he's so holy. He's so glorious that he must punish sin, and yet he's so loving and merciful. He's both. Listen to the New City Catechism. And just listen for a minute to the story of the gospel being told in question and answer. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference for him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Well, what's idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Will God allow all disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? No. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against his righteous law, and God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Is there any way then to escape punishment and to be brought back into God's favor? Yes, to satisfy his justice. God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from the sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. Well, who's the redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Well, what kind of sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who's truly human and yet who's also truly God. Well, why must the Redeemer be human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. Well, why then must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he'd be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Well, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and to bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Does Christ's death mean all our sins are forgiven? Yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, and God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own, and will remember our sins no more. What else does Christ's death redeem? Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. You see, that's what Isaiah 53 is telling us. It tells us ten times why. Surely our griefs he bore, verse 4. Our sorrows he carried, verse 4. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This punishment for our peace fell upon him and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. He will bear their sins and he bore the sin of many. You see, Jesus was righteous. He suffered for the unrighteous 
in order to bring us to God. And who does he do this for? Well, he does it for the many. Three times we're told here that it's for the many. Verse 12, divide a portion with the many. We're told that he bears the sin of many. You see, three times it's mentioned here. And we know that Jesus, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, saying, drink, all of, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How do you know if you're in the many? Are you still trying to minimize or maximize and thinking it's, this cross is not for you? The many is those who say, I need this. I want this. I, I, I need this. I receive this. You see, God isn't pleased with our sacrifices. That's how Isaiah begins. It's really amazing. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat and, fat and, and fed beasts. I do, do not delight or have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and he goats. He has no pleasure in that. And yet we're told in Isaiah 53 that the Lord was pleased to bruise him. Because that's the sacrifice that pleased the Lord. How come? Because of what it accomplished to bring his people to himself. How deep the Father's love for us. That He spared not His Son, but gave Him up for us all. Out of love for us. So that Isaiah 62.4 would be true. That you shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no longer be termed desolate. For you shall be, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land will be married. The delight word again. The delight is in Isaiah 53 that God would punish his son so that he could delight in his people and have a restored people for himself that are accounted righteous. And so we're no longer these people that go around with this badge of, of shame. We're now the people of God. And let me close by telling you how John Piper, I thought, had a great ending to one of his messages I'll just end with this. He, he says, the satisfaction of three deep longings. He says, let's close by thinking once more about these last three benefits that the servant Jesus achieved for us on the cross. He justifies us. He makes us offspring. He shares the spoils of victory. These three gifts of grace resp- uh, correspond to three tremendously deep longings that we all have. Here they are. Number one, we long for some way to get rid of guilt and a bad conscience for all that we've done wrong. And Jesus comes to justify us and account many righteous. Number two, we long to be loved and accepted and part of a significant group of a family. He shall see his offspring. Here am I and the children you give me. He makes us the family of God. And we're his adopted children. And number three, we long to be resourceful people with things at our disposal so we can act and fulfill our best intentions. The servant satisfies each of these longings at the cost of his own life. He justifies the ungodly. He makes us part of the offspring of God. And he shares with us the spoils of universal triumph. Is that not good news? That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all glory, of blessing, of honor, and power.
For you, Lord, are the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, for doing this for us. We thank you for sharing your life and sharing your glory and that we will share eternity with you. Lord, open eyes and hearts. May people find their purpose for living, of being restored to their maker, their creator, and the redeemer of this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.